All right, we want to take a break now to thank one of our sponsors here. You know, we only like to promote and talk about products that we genuinely love here. And here on the podcast, we love our bull and branch sheets. Uh, We've had them in our house more than a year. Jill, I know you have as well. Most, we are huge fans of bull and branch. And if you don't have bull and branch sheets already, what are you waiting for? It's a new year, new you, new sheets. And if all of you with your resolutions are working out, trying to eat healthy, give yourself the gift of some soft sheets. It's a New Year's resolution you can achieve. Bowl and Brand sheets get softer with every wash. We have a few sets here in our house. They're made with 100% organic cotton. They don't have those toxins, those synthetic pesticides, harsh chemicals that many other brands have. So they're especially good if you have sensitive skin. Moshe, that's a big issue in my house. The sheets are good for all seasons. They'll be great. They'll keep you cool in the summer. They'll keep you warm in the winter. And right now, we have a special deal going for the Mo News community. On your first order of Bowl and Branch, you can get 15% off. Just head over to bowlandbranch.com. That is bowl, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Use the promo code, what else? Mo News. Keep in mind, exclusions do apply. So see the site for details. Hey, everybody. It is Friday, September 23rd. I'm Moshe Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news, or at least I try to, and read between the lines so you don't have to. Congratulations. We have made it to the end of another week. I hope everyone enjoys the first weekend, first official weekend of fall this weekend. Here are the stories we're watching on this Friday. The death toll is rising as protests explode across Iran and the authoritarian regime is cracking down. I'll have the latest from Tehran. Staying with that theme, we're also watching smaller but also vocal protests in Russia. That's over Putin's decision to call up hundreds of thousands of Russians to the war in Ukraine. Former NFL quarterback Brett Favre seems to be in a world of trouble down in Mississippi. I'll have more on that. There's a new study out that shows that babies in the womb can apparently taste and smell cry and smile in reaction to different foods. I will have details on that study. And we'll end with the remarkable story of a 56-year-old mother who is carrying her grandchild for her son. I'll have the details on that miracle. But let's start the news here back with Iran. At least nine people are dead since violence erupted over the weekend. That's according to the Associated Press. The scope of Iran's ongoing unrest, which is the worst in probably a decade, still remains unclear because Iran has shut down the internet. But based on the videos we're seeing eke out, there are protests in the thousands, sometimes tens of thousands happening in dozens of cities across the country. The population, it is very young. More than 70% of Iranians are under the age of 25. They are venting anger over social repression, the crises happening across the country, and they are encountering security and paramilitary forces that are trying to bring down these protests with brute force. Like I noted, to prevent the protests from spreading, Iran's biggest telecom operator has shut down mobile internet access, WhatsApp, Instagram, a number of those apps that have been used by the protesters to coordinate have been effectively shut down. That's according to NetBlocks. That's a group that monitors internet access around the world. While the official death toll is at nine, an anchor on Iran's state television station said that the death toll actually may have reached 17. Didn't explain how he got that figure. One of the issues we deal with when we're covering Iran, of course, is that there is no independent media allowed in the country. They are shutting down the internet. So these details, these numbers are very hard to glean. Some of the reports I'm getting from inside Iran, as well as people here who are in communication with people in Iran, is that the protests continue and the demonstrators continue to remain motivated. That's despite the fact that Iranian authorities are pushing out text messages saying that people are risking death by going out into the streets. 
This all erupted last weekend after a 22-year-old Iranian woman, Masa Amini, died following her arrest by Tehran's morality police. They have morality police in Iran. They said that she was not properly wearing her headscarf. They uh, apparently took her into custody, and then she came out in a coma and then would subsequently die. A large number of brave protesters, where it's effectively illegal in Iran, have taken to the streets. They're chanting things like, mullahs get lost, death to the supreme leader, and we don't want an Islamic republic. I also posted several videos on my Instagram account that have gotten out, despite the internet blockage, of women burning their hijabs, burning their headscarves, in protest of the new law, as well as women cutting their hair in public. The violence really has been escalating. The Iranian authorities appear to be concerned about what is happening. This is the, probably the most significant protest since we saw the uh, attempted Green Revolution in the mid-2000s. We're seeing video of police shoving protesters to the ground, beating them, in some cases using lethal uh, weapons against them, which is why we've seen this death toll increase. It'll be very interesting to see how much this escalates. It comes, by the way, as the Iranian president was in New York this week for the UN General Assembly. Uh, one notable thing that I shared on my Instagram account as well is that Christiane Amanpour, she is the chief international anchor at CNN. You might remember her famous reports over the last few decades. She has interviewed several Iranian leaders. She was set to interview the current Iranian president. His aides apparently told her that he would only do the interview if she covered her head, even though the interview was here in New York. Previous Iranian presidents did not require this of her. She refused, and so then they canceled the interview. She put out a photo that has gone viral of her sitting on one side of the interview that was all set up with the translation gear, etc., and an empty chair on the other side after they canceled because she wouldn't wear a headscarf. One other major international story we're watching as we head into the weekend is the fallout from President Vladimir Putin in Russia announcing his plan to effectively draft 300,000 civilians into military service. One day after that announcement on Thursday, thousands of Russians have begun to receive their draft papers and boarded buses to training sites. At the same time, you're seeing a lot of Russians, there are pictures coming out of the airport, leaving the country in a rush, some of them having to pay flight tickets upwards of $10,000 to catch flights to places that are still flying to Russia. That's places like Armenia, Georgia, South Africa, Serbia, and Turkey. The founder of Kovchag, that's a group that helps Russians who oppose the war settle abroad, said her organization has seen a surge in requests for help after Putin's announcement. The initial decree from the Russian authorities said that they would only be drafting from the reserves, from 300,000 military veterans with relevant experience or combat experience who would be called up. But when you actually look at the decree itself by Putin, it is pretty vague. And analysts say that effectively it means that just about anyone could be enlisted so they can get to the 300,000 number. The big issue for the Russians is that their forces have been depleted in Ukraine these last seven months, uh, not well-trained, not motivated, low morale. The Ukrainians have been pushing back and actually gaining territory in recent weeks, which is leaving Russia desperate for numbers to be able to fight back, which is what led to this big announcement. Uh, we have been monitoring the Google searches that Russians are conducting. The surge in the number of people looking for ways to leave the country has exploded in the last 48 hours. Back in New York at the UN Security Council, where all the world leaders have been meeting this week, Ukraine's foreign minister said that Putin's escalation and the announcement was effectively an admission of his, quote, defeat. They went on to say he will not win this war. Back here at home, we're watching a scandal down in Mississippi that has implicated Hall of Fame former Green Bay Packers quarterback Brett Favre. The new report, this was uh, well reported by the publication Mississippi Today, which I urge all of you to read their coverage of this. They broke that Favre was part of a plot to obtain $5 million in federal welfare funds to build a new volleyball stadium for the University of Southern Mississippi. Favre is an alum of the university and his daughter was playing volleyball at the University of Southern Mississippi in recent years as this all went down. 
Now, we're learning part of this from text messages. They were obtained by Mississippi Today, the newspaper. They were filed last week in the state of Mississippi's civil lawsuit over misspent welfare funds. The texts show that former Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant helped Favre funnel at least $5 million in funds that were designated, federal monies designated for welfare. Remember, Mississippi is the poorest state in the union and helped the money go to the university to build what ended up being an $8 million volleyball stadium. Federal welfare money is supposed to go to the neediest families. State auditors say nonprofit leaders in the state misspent $77 million in welfare funds. It is reportedly the largest case of public fraud in Mississippi history. And Favre isn't alone here. The money was distributed and went to a number of folks, political appointees, other former football stars, one-time professional wrestlers, business figures, and a whole bunch of friends of the former Republican governor, that's Phil Bryant, of the state. Now to those text messages, there's one exchange in particular from 2017 that's getting a lot of attention. Remember, again, Favre was being made aware that they were reallocating monies meant for welfare to the stadium. Favre writes, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media could find out where it came from and how much? This was a text to the Mississippi Community Education Center founder, Nancy New. She responds to Favre that he shouldn't worry, that, quote, we never have that information publicized, and then said the governor is on board with this plan. This is all in text messages. By the way, Nancy New, she recently pleaded guilty to 13 felony counts of bribery, fraud, and racketeering for her role in this welfare scheme. And it wasn't just a volleyball stadium. The messages also show that Favre separately was paid $1.1 million to promote the program and speeches. This all, again, were welfare funds being sent to Brett Favre. Well, he never gave those speeches. He ended up returning the $1.1 million, but state authorities say he owes hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest. It should be noted here that Favre, over his time in his NFL career, was paid about $140 million in salary, and yet he was still taking a seven-figure payout from the welfare fund. Now, for his part, Favre's lawyer says the quarterback never understood where the funds were coming from, that the programs were actually meant for the poor. This is what the lawyer is telling NBC News. As of right now, neither Favre or Bryant are being specifically accused of criminal wrongdoing, but the investigation continues, and a legal analyst watching this case say it does not look great for the former NFL quarterback. Okay, we continue to monitor the immigration headlines this week. New York City announced on Thursday that it'll begin to set up large tents to house intake centers and costs for the flood of migrants that are arriving daily right now into New York, as we have seen that influx on the southern border and Republican governors busing some of those migrants north. Now, the announcement from Mayor Eric Adams in New York City contains a few specifics. It does say that there will be an emergency tent shelter, kind of similar to those tents you see set up after hurricanes and natural disasters. This one, at least one, will be set up in Orchard Beach in the Bronx, and that migrants will spend likely between one and four days in those facilities. As we've been watching, the Republican governors of Florida, Texas, Arizona have been busing migrants to blue states. They say they're overwhelmed the border and they need the help, but it also turns out it's pretty politically expedient for them. They argue that these blue states advocate for more lax immigration laws, so they should also have to bear the burden for what's happening at the border. There's no coordination happening. Uh, and so New York authorities, D.C. authorities, Chicago authorities are asking the governor of Texas, governor of Florida to coordinate better. But this is a unfortunate game right now being played with some of these migrants. As of right now, a portion of the over 13,000 migrants who have recently arrived to New York City have been moved out of the shelter system. At least 10,000 migrants, most of them families, are currently being sheltered in one of the city's five shelter systems. About 3,600 of these migrants are school-aged children. 
until these new uh, tent cities, if you will, are ready to go to deal with the overcrowding. New York has been setting up temporary shelters in hotels and other buildings to house the thousands of migrants. But the mayor of New York City says he expects many more thousands of migrants to arrive. The city has to prepare for it. Last week, he said that the city had already hit a breaking point when it comes to these migrants. But to put this in perspective, a number of towns along the border, specifically in Texas, cities like El Paso, are seeing about 1,000 to 2,000 migrants coming in every day. And they say they have been overwhelmed now for weeks and months and are also asking for support. Okay, here's a COVID story that caught my attention on Thursday. The New York Times does an analysis as to why we're still talking about Omicron 10 months after its arrival. Remember, when Omicron originally arrived last November, it was the 13th variant in less than a year. They're naming all these variants after Greek letters through the Greek alphabet. And so the next letter after Omicron is Pi, and Pi has yet to arrive nearly a year later. So the New York Times does an analysis. They're talking to public health officials as to why this is. Why is Omicron so strong? It turns out that of all the variants we've seen, uh, Omicron turns out to have a remarkable capacity for new tricks. And so it's created all these subvariants: Omicron BA1, BA2, BA3. And they're so powerful, and they uh, move through uh, humans so quickly and then slightly change so quickly that they haven't allowed other variants to really take hold anywhere in the world. And there is one new subvariant. We're now up to BA2752 that apparently can evade immune responses better than all earlier forms of Omicron. For now, BA2752, again, they're not giving this a new Greek letter because it's still a derivative of Omicron. You know, in talking to the public health officials, they need to see such a difference before they get to the next Greek letter. So we're now on BA2752. It is making up less than 1% of cases, but they are seeing it continue to grow. And remember that all the other subvariants did start this small, but they see that this one, again, can evade immune responses better than all earlier forms of Omicron. So that is something to watch. The other concern they have is that the boosters that were already approved by the FDA, Moderna and Pfizer, they created them for BA5. So you had Omicron BA1, BA2, BA3, BA5. Well, it turns out that we're now we're looking at BA2752. And so they haven't done full testing here, but there is a concern that because of how quickly Omicron is evolving, and again, this was always the concern, that already the new booster shots uh, might not be able to fight it as effectively as they had hoped. The story refers to these new subvariants effectively as the grandchildren of original Omicron. One thing to note is that all Omicron lineages use a distinctive route to get into our human cells. Now, this has good news and bad news. It gets through much more quickly, but it is less likely to lead to severe infections because of the route it takes into the body. Remember, OG COVID really hit the lungs really badly. But as COVID has evolved into Omicron, it's much more of a nose and throat thing that allows it to be more easily spread, but does mean that you are seeing less severe infections for now. We'll continue to monitor this as science literally tries to keep up with whatever Omicron has come up with and whatever COVID has come up with next. Okay, we told you earlier this week that the Fed announced an interest rate hike that is on the main federal interest rate hike. Well, that overall rate impacts a lot of other interest rates. That includes the mortgage rates in this country. And we learned Thursday that the mortgage rates in the U.S. rose for a fifth straight week. It threatens to freeze even more potential home buyers out of the market. The average for a 30-year fixed loan has now surged to 6.29%. That is up from 6% last week. This is all according to Freddie Mac. We are now at the highest level for a 30-year fixed loan since 2008. Now, remember that this is part of 
the Fed's goal here. They're trying to just cool things down across the economy. And so higher borrowing costs here have shut down the pandemic housing frenzy that I'm sure some of you, if you were not trying to buy homes, you had friends trying to buy homes during these last two years and saw how insane it got. So purchases have been chilled, but it also, with these mortgage rates going up, has limited affordability for prospective buyers who are now in the housing hunt. So this has impacted sales. Sales of previously owned U.S. homes have fallen for the seventh straight month in August. That's according to the National Association of Realtors. We learned that this week. That's the longest string of decline since the housing market crashed back in 07. But analysts say not to worry about the overall market a la 08. We are seeing, obviously, this is the highest, the lowest, the longest since 07, 08, since that housing crash. This housing situation is a very different type of situation. As we talk about interest rates, let me put it in real terms for you. At Freddie Mac's current average, the monthly payment on a $300,000 mortgage is about $1,800. That is nearly $600 more than it was in January. Back in January, the interest rates were just over 3% for a 30-year. And with this interest rate increase, you are seeing prices start to fall in a handful of cities. Obviously, with interest rates going up, less people are able to buy homes. You are seeing people drop their prices. But what is interesting, this is according to S&P Dow Jones Indices data, that home prices continue to climb in 13 of the country's 20 largest cities. Prices are still going up. Places like Miami, Tampa, Chicago. And the housing picture is complicated here because there's also structural problems in the market that are propping up prices. There's a shortage of construction workers. There's a shortage of building lots. There's a shortage on materials that are still holding back construction. And that's contributed to decline in housing permits. So you are seeing a lack of inventory here. So while the rates go up, while the prices start to come down slightly, you are seeing that there's still a shortage of homes, which is propping up the market. Okay, a couple lighter stories as I let you go for the weekend. It turns out your feelings about vegetables may already be developing in the womb. New research released this week on fetuses in the womb show that some smiled after their mothers ate carrots, but grimaced after they ate kale. The results of this study came out of England, where they studied nearly 100 pregnant women and their fetuses, in which the mothers were fed capsules filled with powdered versions of kale and carrots. For the study, this was published in Sage Journals, researchers gave 35 women the equivalent of one medium-sized carrot, while 34 women consumed the equivalent of 100 grams of chopped kale. Then there was a third group that didn't consume either. After 20 minutes, 4D ultrasound images, and I'll share a link to these images in the show notes, showed varying facial reactions from the fetuses depending on what they were fed. The overwhelming number of fetuses exposed to the carrot appeared to be smiling, while those exposed to kale appeared to be grimacing. It turns out the uh, fetuses don't know how trendy kale has gotten in recent years, but I understand their feelings. As for the third group, the control group, they didn't have any of those responses. As for the details from the researchers, the fetuses in the study were at 32 to 36 weeks of gestation. These are the ones that they studied. And the participants in the research, the nearly 100 women, were all white British women between the ages of 18 and 40 with healthy single fetuses. We're probably not far away one day from a, a real-time feed of your fetus reacting to all of your pregnancy cravings, but it is notable. Carrots, yay. Kale, not so yay for the fetuses in England in this new study. And let's end here with a remarkable story of a mother slash grandmother's love. At age 56, Nancy Huck will soon experience something truly unique. She will be giving birth to her own granddaughter. 
Nancy from Utah is serving as a surrogate for her 32-year-old son, Jeff, and his wife, Cambria. Now, Jeff and Cambria, there are actually already parents to two sets of twins. They have three-year-old twins and 11-month-old twins, but they're looking for a fifth child, and Cambria, unfortunately, recently had to go through a hysterectomy following the traumatic birth of the last set of twins, and that left them with few options. So that's when Nancy, 56-year-old Nancy, stepped in. Grandma decided she would work as the vessel to carry the new kid. Now, she was concerned about her age, carrying a baby at her age, at age 56, but after doctors gave her the green light, she acted fast before she began menopause. She notes, by the way, and I'm reading this in People magazine, that it has been 26 years since she was last pregnant. Nancy says she was surprised that doctors told her she was healthy enough, in healthy enough condition to become a surrogate, so she began hormone treatments this past January, and within weeks, she was pregnant with fertilized embryos from Jeff and Cambria. In May, the family learned that they're expecting a girl. She's expected to arrive. The due date is November 5th. Wishing the family good luck. It's a pretty incredible story coming out of Utah. I would like to thank all of you for joining Mo News for another week. An early Happy New Year. Shana Tova to all the Jews bringing in the Jewish New Year this weekend. Jews will be bringing in the year 5783 this Sunday night. A reminder to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. It'll ensure that you don't miss a single episode. And remember to review us in the App Store. Every review makes a difference and helps us continue to climb the ranks and grow the program. I'd love your feedback on how I'm doing, what I'm covering, what you'd like to see on this podcast. You can email me over at podcast at mo.news. You can also subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here on Monday.